would encourage you now to turn in your copies of God's Word to the fifth chapter of the Old Testament book of Joshua. If you're using our Pew Bible this morning, you will find this on page 181. You know, it, it's, it's easy to assume when we open our Bibles that everything that falls between the leather covers is without error, inspired by God in an infallible and inerrant way. But of course, that's not technically true. And not just because of the helpful but fallible study notes that appear in many of our Bibles. It's also important to remember that the extremely helpful chapter and verse numbers are also not a part of the original manuscripts uh, of the Holy Scripture, but were added by the church later. And we're all glad for that. And usually this is not an issue at all, but today it is. For as I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of the book of Joshua, I feel compelled to immediately make the comment that this short passage at the end of chapter 5 really belongs in chapter 6 because it undoubtedly belongs with the story of the siege and the fall of Jericho. The three verses that I'm about to read, frankly, make much more sense if they're read as a part of, of that that narrative. In fact, before we even read those verses at the end of chapter 5, I'm going to ask you just to glance ahead to the first two verses of chapter 6, which read, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. And we know how it goes from there. God then gives the clear instructions for his people to march around the great city all week long. And, and you know what happens next. But do you know what happened right before Joshua was given these strange instructions. Well, you're going to know now. Turn with me uh, to Joshua chapter 5, and let's begin with verse 13. This is the word of God. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, our faith has indeed found a resting place 
Our hearts are leaning on the word, your word this morning. As you have so faithfully given your word, would you now give your spirit in full measure that we might hear the gospel, believe the gospel, love the gospel, and obey it. In Jesus' name we pray for this. Amen. It can't be overstated what an unlikely, really absurd decree the Lord gives Joshua in chapter 6. You are Joshua, and you lead a, a group of landless people, and you are to take one of the most ancient cities on earth, the legendary fortress of Jericho with its towering defenses. By the way, folks, you can go to Israel today. Well, actually, you probably shouldn't go to Israel today. But at some point, go to Israel and you can go to the archaeological dig of Jericho. And you can see the collapsed walls, the ancient walls uh, that are there. This is an historical event that we're describing here. Now, the Israelites, according, according to Yahweh's instructions, were to lay siege to this famously strong city with nothing more than long, a long march, a bunch of horns to blow, and a shout. I mean, this is like sending a high school marching band into battle. Have you ever wondered why neither Joshua nor apparently any of the Israelites questioned such a bizarre battle plan? The Israelites, if you read all of chapter 6, they immediately go and do just what the Lord tells them. There's no grumbling, there's no questioning of the plan recorded anywhere in that chapter. And frankly, that's not the Israelites we came to know during the wilderness years. They were always questioning and complaining. So why? Why their quick and unquestioning obedience to this command? Well, surely it's because of what happens at the end of chapter 5. In verse 13 of that chapter, we read that Joshua was by Jericho. Now, Again, to bring this into focus, the precise historical context is this. The Israelites have just reinstituted the circumcision ritual, and they have entered the promised land after four decades of being in a kind of communal timeout from God in the wilderness. And they have just celebrated the Passover Seder. And now the supernatural means of support, which was the manna that came every night, had come every night for 40 years, ceases. And they begin to feast on the rich produce of their promised land. These are heady, happy, exciting days for the Israelites. But... In point of fact, they actually possessed and controlled none of the land. And the promise and the first place the Lord calls them to attack is not a little unguarded village somewhere. It is the Canaanite citadel city of Jericho. 
which, as we read in verse 1 of the 6th chapter, has already buttoned up themselves, closed their, their gates to protect themselves from the horde of former slaves from Egypt, these landless Hebrew tribes. So Joshua is standing near Jericho because he's doing some reconnaissance. He's scoping out the enemy's defenses. And we read in the text that he lifted up his eyes and looked, which is standard Bible language for when some event of great importance is about to happen. But you know, it also may hint that his eyes had been cast down, cast down before that under a furrowed brow, eyes cast down in discouragement, cast down even in despair. How can we take possession of a land when it has fortresses like this? But then he looks up and he sees a man. Well, he thinks it's a man anyway. It looks like a man, a man holding a great battle sword in his hands. But the biblical writer is signaling that there's something more than a mere man here because he writes, and behold, a man standing before him. Now that behold language is yet another signal. It's something of great significance. Maybe, maybe even heavenly origin is about to happen. Of course, this man with a drawn sword immediately reminds us of the angel of the Lord who guarded the entrance to Eden after the fall with a flaming sword. It reminds us of the angel of the Lord with a sword who confronted the corrupt prophet Balaam. It brings to mind the angel of the Lord David saw in a vision with a sword held out over Jerusalem because of David's sin of ordering a forbidden census. But, did you know that the word angel actually doesn't appear in our passage? Now Joshua addresses this man as a man, asking him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? See, I think the text is actually intentionally ambivalent about this being's exact identity. So General Joshua... One of the true heroes, of course, of the Old Testament, he's thinking only in the practical ways that war captains must think. Is this armed man for us or is he against us? Is he on our side or is he on their side? Joshua is living in the ordinary transactional world we all live in all the time, where one must measure others, where uh, one determines and must determine whether another person is bringing uh, blessings or burdens to the equation of your life. Sometimes negotiating with this person, sometimes uh, dealing with them in more Subtle ways. Sometimes we have to get out a checkbook. Sometimes we have to serve a summons. Sometimes we may ask them on a date. 
Sometimes we'll sign a contract with them. And sometimes we may strike them down. Wary, wise, transactional living. So Joshua is asking a straightforward, clarifying, either-or question. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? It's entirely understandable that Joshua is thinking in this way. In a fallen world where life is often a struggle and where sin makes us all vulnerable to being cheated, misused, and hurt, It is totally understandable that Joshua just wants to know if the being standing in front of him will help or hurt the calls of the people he leads and serves. How does this armed man fit into the plans and the needs of the nation? Are you on our team or on theirs? There's no indication from the passage that Joshua commits any sin by asking this practical question. Are you for us or for our adversaries? But the man, this mysterious sentinel, standing in front of him, replies by saying, no. He says no. To an either-or question, the man answers no. Because you see, Joshua's question is not even the right kind of question. It's an understandable one. It might even be necessary in some sense, but it is not the question for that moment because the truth is the man standing in front of him is in fact an angel of the Lord. The word angel again doesn't appear here, but back in Exodus chapter 23, Right after the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, God promised his people that he would send an angel of the Lord bearing a sword to fight their battles for them when they entered the land of Canaan. Now that was 40 years prior to this encounter outside of Jericho. But the Lord had not forgotten his promise, even if Joshua and the people had. So, it might indeed be an angel, even this great prophesied war angel. But to keep it complicated, sometimes the phrase angel of the Lord is simply a way of speaking of God himself or Christ himself as he appeared uh, before he was even born to Mary what theologians call a pre-incarnate vision or appearance of Christ. What do you think? Who is this man? Who is this armed man? The word angel's not used here, and it continues to, to appear to be a man. He doesn't sprout wings, you know. He's holding a sword in his hand. Joshua initially addresses as, as a man, and yet, and yet something more than a man. In verse 14, this man says, But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Clearly, this is a heavenly being of some sort. Maybe an angel. Maybe a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In any case, 
He commands the armies, the angelic armies of God, using the divine language of I am. This being says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and I have come. And you see, his coming makes the question, are you for us or against us, irrelevant. The question is not whether this strange man is for or against Joshua and the Israelites. The question is whether Joshua and the Israelites are for or against him. Because he has come. He has come. And his coming is more immediately significant than any strategy the Israelites might use to take Jericho. For there is no doubt if the commander of the Lord's armies will have the city, it will be had. If he will not have it taken, it will not fall. Because the real commander of the sacred army is not Joshua, but the Lord himself. It is, as the old hymn says, the Son of God who goes forth to war. When he says, I have come, surely the eyes and ears of faith know, must know, that the war is already won. We also know that this mysterious visitation is more significant than any of the particular battle strategies which would follow. The knowledge of God, this is theological ultimately, the knowledge of God is greater than the particular plans of the church. The presence of Christ is a more immediate and pressing reality every day. Even than the great missionary calls of the church, which is the most important thing in the world other than our union and communion with Jesus Christ. Don't misunderstand me. The the transactional aspect of life is inescapable in a fallen world. You know, Jesus himself commended the wise or clever steward in Luke 16 who acted with great cunning, you might say. He commended dealing with people in shrewd ways, asking good questions, making and enforcing contracts, measuring people's intentions, ensuring the compliance of others, locking our doors at night, keeping our passwords secret, and making sure anyone who works with our children at Sovereign Grace, does so by going first through and complying with our child and youth protection program that we have instituted. Until Christ returns, we will have to have our protective policies and survival plans, our causes and our committees and our fund drives and our negotiations and all the other transactional necessities which have been made necessary by the catastrophe of sin in this world. But, 
We must also be a people who, through faith, transcend the smallness of our agendas and the narrowness of my side versus your side. We need to try as best as we can to think outside of the binary forms of thought that the world presses in upon us. Because he, that is the captain of our salvation, has come into our very midst. He first, we know and confess, became flesh and he dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And by his mighty spirit, he has promised to abide with us until the end of this transactional age. And the critical question is not, will he be for us? We know he is. But will we be for him? Will we abide in him as he has promised to ever abide in us and with us? And so this is incredibly relevant to our moment. When Christians go on crusades instead of into worship, or emphasize politics over prayerfulness, it almost always ends badly for us. Dale Ralph Davis says of Joshua's encounter with this God-man, sometimes we need to see that Yahweh is not so much partisan as sovereign, And that it is more important to recognize God's position, more important to recognize God's position than to know God's plans. And he writes, we can easily become more interested in special guidance from God than in a right relationship with the guide himself. The postmodern American religious industrial complex has become incredibly transactional in nature. You know, people often say, I'm going to go to worship to see what I can get out of it. That is the height of transactionalism. Many people leave churches when the slightest difficulties arise, and there are times we must leave. But when the slightest difficulties arise, and then they ghost their fellow Christians when there are disagreements instead of working obediently as Jesus taught us to do for personal reconciliation. As Pastor Ben said last week, we even have now a big old internet brouhaha over whether folks should bring coffee into worship services. Yes, brouhaha is a slight pun there, if you caught it. (laughs) Meanwhile, non-doctrinal megachurches build their whole ministries around a marketing model that promises personal self-fulfillment and various kinds of worldly success in life. Have your best life now, they say. But where is the emphasis on the presence, capitalized P, presence of the Lord himself with us. We're always making our pious plans to scale the walls of Jericho, 
But the Lord is standing right in front of us and he's saying to us over and over again, Now I have come. Take off your shoes because you are on holy ground. I guess what I'm really asking is, where can we find some of that old time religion which soaks itself in the glory of our God? The transactional aspect of Faith, and I'll put quote, air quotes around faith in our day, is also seen in uh, yet more grotesque ways. This is a newsletter advertisement from the Center for Social Justice and Reconciliation, which is a kind of think tank housed by the Liberal Seminary in Virginia that I attended in the 1980s. And things have clearly continued to slide further downward since I was there at Union Seminary. The titles of the webinars this year that they are offering are, well, we missed this one, October 17th, voting. November 9th, reconciliation. Would you like to, well, we're not going to bet, but you can be assured there's no reference to the atonement of of the cross in this version of reconciliation. January 16th, decentering whiteness. March 19th, womanist theopoetics. I don't know what it is either. April 16th, clear water, clean water and indigenous justice movements. May 21st, Affirmative Action, June 18th, the standard bearer, of course, LGBTQIA plus justice. Now, whatever validity some of those concerns may have in the public square, I mean, who, who is really against clean water? Whatever validity some of that may have, what in the name? of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, does that have to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is not an innocent straying from the historic path of the faith. The subtitle of this series at my former seminary is indicative. It says, Just Intersections, Paving the Way of God. You see, Joshua realized that day outside of Jericho that only the sovereign Lord God himself could pave the way for his people. But the folks at Union Seminary apparently now believe that they pave the way for God. Paving the way for God. Bringing in the kingdom. I guess they would call it the queendom. Through their webinars. And this left-wing stuff is not the only way that faith is made petty and partisan and transactional. Pastor Barkley and I received a letter some time ago from church members here at Sovereign Grace who are no longer at Sovereign Grace basically telling us we needed to instruct everyone to vote Republican since apparently now that is the party of God in American politics. 
By the way, did you know that the word Hezbollah in, in Aramaic means party of God? The couple said to us that, uh, that we need to be more uh, political and that's partisan in, in that sense. They said that we pastors, and they said this, and speaking of Bill and myself particularly, were as cowardly as the German pastors who cooperated with Hitler. Now, to their credit, they backed down from that after we responded to them. And, and don't ask me who they are because I'm not telling you. But listen, beloved. The church of Jesus Christ must always Always transcend this small vision, transactional spirit through the mighty work of the Holy Spirit in our receptive and repentant hearts. That's what Will read about from Acts chapter 2 earlier this morning. That's where the old time religion really comes from. Because we're still dealing with God himself this day. We're dealing with God We must deal with God himself because he has come and he presents himself to us over and over again, Sabbath by Sabbath in his gospel. Like the mysterious man at Jericho, again and again he is declaring to us, now I have come. Do you believe he comes into your life through the ministry of the means of grace? Is God not dealing with you? Is he not dealing with you today? Do you want to know what it would look like if he was? Well, look at good old practical and transactional General Joshua's response to the presence of the Lord in the second half of verse 14. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now this is more like it. Joshua falls on his face to the earth. He's now lowly. He's he's yielded. He's utterly open before the Lord. He's no longer questioning him about whose side he is on. He's awaiting his own orders now. No longer obsessed with the immediate and the transactional, but dwelling now in the transcendent. The Hebrew word translated worship here can also be translated simply as giving homage. And you may have also noticed that the ESV translation uses the lower case letter L for Lord here. The translators are clearly hedging their bets still about whether this is God himself in a, in a form that Joshua can handle, as it were, or a heavenly servant of God in a form Joshua can handle. But either way, it's clear Joshua is dealing with the holy. He's dealing with his Lord. So he must worship. As one scholar says, this vision is a manifestation Of the zeal of God. The zeal of God for his people. In every meaningful way, Yahweh has drawn near to his servant. 
So Joshua can only bow low. He can only worship and adore and yield himself. The commander of the Lord's army instructs the commander of the Hebrew armies to take off his sandals from his feet. Because the place where he is standing was holy. Like his immediate predecessor Moses before the burning bush, the real conquest now is in Joshua's own heart. And the Lord's own presence was enough to conquer that heart. When that conquest is complete, the walls of Jericho, well, they'll come tumbling down. That actually is the easy part. I got a letter, wonderful card recently from Christian Trotter, who is at the Hebron Sobriety Ministry in Boone be coming home in a few weeks. He he never mentions here the word addiction or alcohol. He has more important things going on. He says here, I am growing closer to the Lord every day. I am very grateful that I came here. Later he says, I've been buckling down, focusing on Christ first. I've been a worldly Christian for so long, but the Lord wants all of me. Beloved in Jesus, as our world writhes in the agonies of wars and rumors of other wars, and artificial intelligence lurches forward in unknown ways, and opioid addictions and political stalemates and the utterly debased commercial culture of our society seem to go forward without any hesitation. It does look like these proud walls of human depravity and pride are never going to come down, right? It looks hopeless. Jericho's walls are high indeed. They're very strong in themselves. God is not first of all concerned to tell us just how those walls will eventually come down. He'll take care of that. He has a more immediate purpose. And we as his people have to deal with a more immediate issue than those societal walls. Because before he will deal with the walls of the pagan fortress, he would first deal with the walls in his own people's hearts Walls in the souls of his beloved elect which keep us from living a lively, sustaining, daily dance with the Holy Spirit. Walls which, are, which make our, our promised union and communion we have with the God-man Jesus a doctrinal afterthought and not the very living center of our soul's contemplative experience each day. Our union and communion with Christ is our birthright in Him. It's our rebirthright in Him. 
And it will be the radiance that comes from the lives of the redeemed themselves which finally begins to cause the satanic walls of this world to crumble more than all our strategies and tactics ever could. Matthew Henry said it was the felt presence of Christ that allows us to conquer. And Jesus said we are above all else to abide in him. And so today, he stands before us and he says to his church, now I have come. Take off your shoes for you are on holy ground. Would you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we do abide in you, for you have come. And by your Spirit dwelling in our hearts, you are with us in a way that frees us from the transactional tyranny of this fallen world. And so the ground that we are standing on this morning we know is holy. Lord, we are in your presence and our lives and our hearts are holy to you. Say what you will, O Lord, to your servants, for we are yielded before you and we are listening. In your name we pray. Amen.